We are in Second Peter. We're going to start Second Peter, and I have the privilege of, of doing that. Second Peter, near the end of your Bible, right before John and his epistles. Second Peter, chapter one. We're going to be focusing on the first four verses this morning. Join me as we read. <clears throat> It says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's that time of year again, time for New Year's resolutions. It's during this time of year that, that people make new commitments to improve themselves. Workouts and diet plans, financial plans to save better and invest more, plans to be more, more organized and efficient. And though these plans can be good, they, sometimes these new desires to improve come with the danger of committing to the right thing in a wrong way. New workout gurus will, will tote their program, right? You can eat whatever you want. You can barely exercise, and I promise you'll get that swimsuit body. You'll, you'll hear it. Pay attention. It's coming. Financial gurus will sell you their secret investing strategies. And if you just follow their advice, you'll be filthy rich with barely any effort. It's coming. Listen for it. And the problem is that this isn't new. This isn't new. As, as you can tell, we're, we're starting a new series on 2 Peter. And, and in this letter, Peter is directly addressing false teaching of his day. Those who were touting their own improvement plans. These false teachers were proclaiming lies to the church. Secret knowledge. The easy way out. This is what it really means to know Jesus. We're calling this series... End, end door as we endure to the end because Peter's focus and goal is that each and every one of you would make it to the end, to the goal of your salvation. And to do that, they would need to know the truth. And so for those of you struggling to endure to the end, for those of you facing false teaching all around you, for those of you combating the corruption of sin that is in your heart, for those of you weary from everything the world throws at you, Peter says you need knowledge. That's how he begins and ends this letter. In verse 2, he says, May grace and peace be multiplied you in the knowledge of Jesus, of God and Jesus our Lord. And then in the very last verse of the whole book, chapter 3, verse 18, he says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
You need knowledge. And for Peter, in this context, knowledge is both knowing more about God and knowing him in a deeper relational way. You, we must know God with our head and with our heart. And so what is it that we need to know? Well, we're going to look at three things. You need to know his purpose. You need to know his power. And you need to know his promise. So we'll start with his purpose. The first thing you need to know is his purpose for you. Verse 3. We see it. His divine power has granted to us all things that we need for our purpose. Life and godliness. His power equips you for your purpose, which is to live a life of godliness. It is not biblically incorrect to say that your purpose could be summarized as living a life of godliness. That is your purpose. That's what you were created for. We're literally answering the question, what is the meaning of life? To live a godly life. Now, Peter was in part responding to false teachers, and, and they claimed to have a real knowledge of God. And part of this real knowledge was that Jesus was never returning. We see this at the end of the book, uh, which we'll talk about. Uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Peter's, Peter's talking about them and saying, they, the false teachers, will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are just continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. He's not coming back. Now, this knowledge led them to, to teach others that there was no need to obey Jesus' commands. Makes sense. If Jesus isn't returning, I can do whatever I want. And Peter says, no. True knowledge leads to a certain way of living, life and godliness. And so because I love you, I have a question I'd like for you to ponder today, this week, and quite frankly, for the rest of your life. How are you living? Take your time as, as you consider and, and answer that question. How are you living? What drives your decisions? Why do you do certain things and not do other things? What is that deeply ingrained motivation and goal that drives everything you do. For what purpose are you living? We all have an intended purpose. We all have a way that we might answer that on a test, right? The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us a, a really good answer, right? What is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and or by enjoying him forever. That's the intended purpose. That's, that's what we should say. But what happens when we take a closer look? There might be a second purpose, the, the purpose we're actually living for. And I don't know what that is for you. Maybe you've structured your life around fun or comfort or security or accomplishments. Maybe you're living as if the purpose of your life is to have a nice family and a nice career and good memories. Let's stack up as many good memories as we can before we leave the surf. Maybe, as I suspect is the case with the majority of the world, you haven't thought about it much. We're too distracted with all the, all the bells and whistles of this life to think about our purpose on a deep level. And so we mostly just 
go about our lives. You just put one foot in front of the other, do the next thing, etc., etc. Peter reminds these Christians and you, Christian, that you must go about the purpose of godliness. But how we go about it is just as important. Imagine you, you drive past a stranger's house and, and you see a beautiful car, a classic car, and pretend you're into cars. It's necessary for this. Imagine you, you look at the car and you can just tell because you're so into cars that this used to be a beautiful, powerful machine. But now it's being used for storage. It's just sitting there in someone's garage with tools and books and papers in it. Now, without me telling you, you can imagine what this car looks like, right? The tires are flat. The paint is faded. The exterior is a little rusted. The internal parts probably don't work. Now, imagine you purchase that car and you restore it to its former glory. Not just on the inside, but on the outside. It looks beautiful. That's what, Jesus, that's what Peter tells us Jesus has done for us. Sin corrupted us, but we've been restored. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. To do what we were meant to do to fulfill your purpose. But, after you purchase this car and restore it, that's what I want to focus on. After you purchase this car, after you put in all the work, after it's completely restored, what do you do? Do you then speak to your car and say, okay, since I fixed you, you owe me, car. You better drive me around wherever I want. You owe me. No, not just because the car can't talk back, but because that's not how it works. A car is meant to be driven. You're not looking for repayment, you're looking to repurpose the car. A car is meant to be driven, not to be used as storage. You restore a car in order to drive it. You save a godless person in order that they might fulfill their purpose to live a godly life. We too often think of the Christian life as, as payback. We speak of it as if we're returning a favor. Even if that's not what we believe, that's how we speak of it sometimes. Jesus saved me, so the least I can do is get involved in a local church. I guess I should give up my time and money. Because Jesus has forgiven me, I, I have to forgive these other people. I'm sorry, the chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's your purpose. That's your chief, primary, top goal. Enjoy Him. Glorify Him. Our response to the gospel cannot be about repaying God. It's about being repurposed by Him. As we read in 2 Timothy chapter 2, God is the one who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of Him, His own purpose, His own grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the world began, before the ages began. 
like a master builder, God created us in Jesus for a purpose. Not because of good works, but for good works. To follow his laws, to kill our sin, to take care of this world and the things he has given us. To show others what he is like by how we love others. Christian, you are not, by any stretch, you are not worthless. You are not meaningless. You are not purposeless. You have a purpose. And that is good news. Amen? And just like, just like Peter points us to Christ, just like Paul points us to Christ, Peter doesn't push us to New Year's resolutions that will be here one day and fade the next. He will urge us towards something better, towards Christ himself. And in Christ, we see that we have the power and the promise to fulfill our purpose. So just as we've looked at how we need to know our purpose, we also need to know his power. A little bit of background here is, is helpful. Um, remember, Peter is addressing false teachers. Now, we imagine false teachers sometimes like we imagine the devil, right? A red suit, horns growing out of his head, and a pitchfork. Satan, Satan's much, much more disguised than that. He's a beautiful angel of light. He's much more charming and persuasive than we imagine him. And so are false teachers at times. And so part of my job is to equip you with true knowledge so that you will be able to distinguish false teaching from true life-giving gospel. So their false teaching that Peter's addressing was that because it's impossible to escape the corruption of sin, you shouldn't try. You're free. That's what they were touting, freedom. You're free to live however you want. Pick and choose which commandments are reasonable to keep, right? We can only do so much. We're only human. It's impossible to keep God's law. We agree with some of that. It is impossible to keep God's law. We can't keep all of God's commandments because we're so sinful, right? Don't be so bigoted and old-fashioned. Lighten up. Isn't that freeing? Don't you feel so free? We see Peter's response in chapter 2, verse 19. He's, he's talking about the false teachers and those who listen to them. So he says, they, that's the false teachers, they promise their listeners freedom. But can they actually give it? No, and that's evidenced by what? They themselves are slaves. How can you offer someone freedom if you yourself are a slave? As we've learned through the history of wars, true, true freedom requires true power. The false teachers were proclaiming freedom. They were, they were selling freedom. But by their actions, they were showing that their inventory was empty. They were showing they had no power. They had no freedom. They were still living a lifestyle of sin, just like everyone around them. They are like the people described in 2 Timothy chapter 3. They, they have an appearance. They have an appearance of godliness. It looks like they're really living out God's law, but they're denying its power. And so we're told, avoid such people. Avoid their teaching. Avoid following their ways. And Peter, without denying that anyone can be holy enough for God, he responds, 
with our passage. He says, with them, it is impossible. Of course, it is impossible to deny God's law. But he says in verse three, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What the false teachers proclaim to be impossible, Jesus makes possible. Humans who were once enemies of God and corrupted by sin can now live truly free and godly lives. Of course it's impossible for you to forgive that person by yourself. Of course it's impossible for for you to love your spouse and your children by yourself. Of course it's impossible to put up with bad leadership by yourself. It is still true that no one can keep the law in their own power, but the response to that cannot be to abandon God's commands or to justify our actions to live whatever lifestyle we want to live. The response to God's impossible requirements is to obey them in His power. Again, not to earn His favor, not to earn acceptance, not to earn freedom, but in order to live out the favor, acceptance, and freedom we've been given. Uh, Let me bring you back to the once faded, now restored car. Does a restored car drive on the road in order to become a car? Right. Does does a restored car drive on the road in order to become a better car? Will, Will driving on the road fix any future mechanical or electrical issues? No. We've got the order backwards. It only drives on the road once it's already been restored. Not to repay, which we've already seen, nor to earn. Nor to earn anything. It is simply fulfilling its purpose. The purpose it could not fulfill by its own power. Cars cannot restore themselves. Only humans can restore cars because we made them. Likewise. Some of you see where I'm going with this. Likewise. Humans cannot restore themselves because we did not make ourselves. And so since our purpose is godliness, remember this. Only God can make people godly. We need to know his power. No Bible reading plan will make people godly. Voting for the right people, whoever that is, will not make people godly. Trying to stop people from doing certain sinful actions will not make them godly. Only God can make people godly. His divine power is what has allowed us and given us and granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Your purpose requires a power outside of yourself. That's why Paul talks about putting on the armor of God. We all know this passage. Because in a, corrupting, in a corrupted world, living a godly life is a fight. That's why, he ta- that's why he uses war imagery. It's a fight. Telling the whole truth in a corrupted world and nothing but the truth. Where lying is acceptable and it's even expected. That's a fight. That's a struggle. Being generous with our time and our money in a corrupted world that is all about take, take, take. That's a fight. It's a struggle to be generous. Remaining sexually pure in a corrupted world where sin is celebrated. That's a fight. 
That's a struggle. And so you need to be properly equipped. And so as you are thinking about the armor of God, as you're thinking about equipping yourself with the belt of truth, uh, uh, sorry, the belt of truth and the shield of faith, remember how Paul started this, this whole dissertation. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. That is the only way, verse 11, that you will be able to put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's the only way. In the strength of His might. In His strength by His power. We fight against sin. We fight against injustice. We fight against everything that goes against the kingdom of God, whether it's out there in the world or in here in our hearts. But we do not do it in the strength of our own efforts. We do it in the strength of His might. We do it because His divine power has granted to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness. And we remember that His power is not just the starting point. That's the last thing I want to say about this. It's not difficult to read this and think, okay, His divine power has granted to me everything that I need for godliness. Okay, I have everything I need. Now let's go. I've, I've got to make sure that I make it to the end. It's up to me now. God gave me a good head start. Here we go. That's not at all the picture that Scripture paints. Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 1 what Peter already knew. Paul says, I am sure of this. I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it about to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This whole series is about enduring to the end. You will not endure. Christ Jesus will make sure that you endure. You are not, you are not in charge of your own endurance. Jesus Christ will bring your work of salvation to completion in his day. As you fight, Jesus has not just given you a good head start. His divine power has granted you, will grant you, everything you need. If you have experienced that, you can testify to that. And we see evidence of that power finally through his promises. Just as we need to know his purpose and we need to know his power, we need to know his promise. Uh, verse 4 of our passage. Peter writes, by which by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. By what? Just look right before. This is the verse that comes right before. He says, uh, Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Keep that up there for just a second. Through the glory and excellence of Jesus, through his own glory, he has granted to us precious and very great promises. Through His own glory, He has granted to us promises that will ensure that we endure. What are these promises? Sorry, we don't know. We don't exactly know, I should say. Peter doesn't elaborate. Peter doesn't say, and these are the promises. We can guess. We can look at Acts where he preaches 
we can look at his other writings and kind of discern what the promises are, but it's probably best to take this as just the promise of the gospel. All that you are promised in Jesus Christ. There's no need to narrow it further. But the focus for Peter is not what is the promise. The focus is what does the promise do for you, Christian? That's the focus. His focus is what we get through the promises. Look at verse 4 again. He says, so that through them, verse 4, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Through these precious and very great promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. I'm sure you have no questions on divine nature. There's no confusion there. But just in case we have any visitors, divine nature. Paul does not mean that we become God. We don't take on his nature or become divine. What he does mean is that we partake of his nature. We become in part like God. In what way do we become like God? Our desires. Our desires. We will no longer have sinful desires that corrupt. That's ungodly. We will only, exclusively, solely have godly desires. We will be free from the corruption that is in the world. But look at how Peter phrases it. In verse 4, he says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through these promises you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Not that you will escape, that you have escaped. What enables you to endure to the end is that you know that God's promises are true. And you know that God's promises are true in the future because of what has happened in the past and what is happening in the present. You have already escaped the corruption that is in the world. Your status and your desires have already changed. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Now. Now. The old has passed away already. I, I thought about I thought about writing this car illustration one last time. See what I did there? I, I was going to tell you that if a car has been running great for 10 years, then that's a sure sign that it'll, it'll run for a few more. I can tell by your reaction that wouldn't have worked, right? So some, of you are, some of you are seeing the problem with that. That's not true. That's just not true. A car, an appliance, even a relationship can, can break down unexpectedly. The real estate market can implode. The stock market can crash. A business can fail. And then I thought, that's actually the perfect illustration. The fact that there is no illustration. There's nothing I can present to you that would compare to God's promises. There is no equivalent in the world around us because everything in this world has the possibility of failing. Everything in this world has the potential to let you down. His word is the one exception. What he has promised will come true. That's what enables you to endure. That's what you need to know for godly living. And so we have promises. 
we do have promises like the one in 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, John writes what we've been talking about. He says to you, the church, beloved, we are God's children. That's a whole sermon. I have to skip over it. But I mean, we're God's children right now. Let, the, let that sink in when you're struggling. But I must go on. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But here's what we do know. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What John is saying here is that participation in the divine nature is the starting point, not the goal of Christian living. Participating in the divine nature, becoming like God, is not merely the goal. It's the starting point of Christian living. You are in Christ. And what you will fully be one day, you can't imagine right now. But you have a foretaste. You have an appetizer. You don't live a godly life now so that one day you might become more like Jesus. No, you live a godly life today because you know the promise, the guarantee, the assurance that you will one day be like him. In that, you will have no sin, no evil desire, only good. And because you've already escaped the full corruption of sin. As Paul puts it, in Colossians, we, we confessed from Colossians this morning. I, I want to bring it up one more time. He says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Notice the order. He goes on in verse 3. You have died. There's a, there's a sense in which you're already dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. On account of that, since that's our starting point, he goes on to say in verses 9 and 10, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in what? In knowledge. In knowledge after the image of its creator. This is what you need to know. We need these reminders when we are tired and discouraged. These promises are not entirely future. We have a foretaste of them right now. And so as we, as we briefly conclude this morning, let me leave you with, with God's own word. Your endurance, your making it to the goal of your salvation, which is that you would be transformed to be like Christ, really doesn't depend on you at all. It depends on his purpose for you. It depends on his power in you. It depends on his promise to you. As we read in Galatians chapter 2, we will, we will sing these words. Paul writes to the church for all time and forever. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That, that is what you have. You have a love and you have a sacrifice that enables you to fulfill your purpose of living 
a godly life, not as a way of repaying God, not as a quid pro quo, not because I guess you owe him, but out of love, out of delight, out of enjoying him forever, we now can and must live the life he has called us to. But as we will sing in a moment, it is yet not I, but Christ in me. All praise, all glory, all honor be to our Lord Jesus Christ, who will ensure that we endure. Amen. Join me as we pray. Our good and gracious God, thank you for these promises. Thank you for the reassurances. Thank you for the equipping. Thank you for all the ways that you you give your people what they need. Thank you that you have rescued us. And I pray that we would not just think about the purpose of our life, but live in light of it. That we would, through your strength, through your calling, through your reminders, through your motivation, that we would live the lives that you have called us to in small and big ways, that we may be faithful in all the things that you have called us to. And we rejoice and we confess that it is yet not I, but Christ in us. And so we pray in his name. Amen.